When we use the term, the suffering of Job, to describe something we or, or someone we know might be experiencing, we need to constantly keep in mind the very real experience and circumstances out of which that term was born. We've seen that Job was a man who in, ma- in a matter of days went from being the greatest man in all of the, the region in which he lived, morally upright, blameless in the eyes of God, to watching all his wealth disappear, to burying seven sons and three daughters that were all killed in a terrible storm, of being afflicted with a sickness that caused unbearable pain and, and sores over his whole body and, and, and unrelieved emotional suffering, leaving him utterly rejected by his friends, rebuffed by society, and repulsive even to his own wife. Job literally finds himself, as we've seen, on the ash heap of life. And while there are likely few of us in here today who will truly undergo the enormity and the severity of the suffering that that Job experienced, the reality is that in in our own times of painful trials, when we go through some difficult suffering, we can find ourselves wrestling with some of the same hard questions, the same deep-seated emotions, the same battles of of faith that we find Job wrestling with in his own heart and mind that we've seen over these last weeks. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Where is the goodness and the mercy of God in this? How can God be for me when, when everything in my life seems like he is against me? And as the pain lingers long, we see these these questions only grow in their intensity. And Job begins to to very honestly voice his lament and even his his complaint against God, only to be answered by his three friends, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, who who have traveled far and, and, and though with good intentions to comfort and console Job, end up actually trying to correct him. And it only causes more confusion, more pain for Job. And we've seen that from from their perspective, the the perspective of his three friends, Job, the the reason why these things have come into Job's life is very simple. God is righteous. God is just. And therefore, he punishes those who do wrong and he rewards those who do right. Right. And since Job is is suffering so greatly, he must have committed some grievous sin. He must have done something in his life to to bring about all this judgment from God. That's their their, uh, answer to this question. And their solution is therefore pretty simple as well. They say, Job, just... Just repent of your sins. Just confess what you have done. Commit yourself to God and... And he'll make things better. And that's not bad advice in many cases. (laughs) But in Job's case, it's not applicable because Job knows he is innocent. He can't think of anything he has done to warrant such suffering. Indeed, we saw back in chapter 1 that God himself says of Job, he is blameless and upright. 
Therefore, his pain is magnified, Job's pain is magnified by this mystery as to why God is subjecting him to such utter misery. And so as Job becomes increasingly defiant with his friends who are, who are, are suddenly becoming more false accusers than, than true comforters, they grow increasingly frustrated and angry with Job. And this, this dialogue that's happening with them that we looked at in the, in the first round of speeches in chapters 4 through 14 last week, it now becomes in this second round a, a full-blown argument. <laughs> they're, they're going at each other. And in these chapters, the tones become more and more confrontational, more accusatory by Job's friends, and more and more defensive and, and, and dismissive of their advice on Job's part. And if you've ever been through deep suffering or you've ever tried to comfort someone in deep suffering, you, you know how that can go sometimes. Sometimes the things we say don't necessarily bring the comfort we intended or the things that people say to us may come across as something that has hurt us. And sometimes that can cause tension. Sometimes it can, it can cause a growing division in there. But in this case, in the course of these painful dialogues, in the wrestling with and the defending against the, the accusations of these three men, we continue to see something happening in Job's heart. Something that is strengthening his resolve to, to maintain his integrity before God and to increase his hope that ultimately he will be vindicated by God. It's a resolve and a hope that we, we see expressed most clearly in the words that we read from chapter 19, and which is where we're going to focus our attention this morning. Let me just address quickly the arguments of, of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar in this second round uh, of, of dialogues with Job. And their arguments begin to ramp up in their intensity while basically not changing at all in content. They're saying the same thing they've been saying, just in a more forceful way. They cannot break away from seeing everything in Job's situation through this, through this single lens, this kind of monocular vision of their theological system that says in the moral order of God's universe, those who do good are rewarded and those who do bad are punished. The wicked are punished and the righteous prosper. And so they continue to press Job to see, to, to see things as they see them. They are clearly convinced that they are right. And that his situation obviously means he's done something bad and thus finds himself in the company of the wicked. And so Eliphaz drops these, the kid gloves that he had uh, on when he was trying to soften the, the blows in his first speech. And in chapter 15, he basically comes out and says, Job, you're just full of hot air. And your own defiant words condemn you. And he repeats his early assess earlier assessment. No man can be pure before a righteous and holy God. And then he waxes eloquent about the suffering and the fate of anyone who stretches out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, implying that Job is one who has done just that. And then Bildad comes along in chapter 18 and he follows with an even more despairing description of the darkness of hell. He says in chapter 18 verse 5, the light of the wicked is snuffed out and terrors frighten him on every side. 
His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. He consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. Bildad delivers quite an impressive fire and brimstone sermon trying to to strike fear in the heart of Job. And Zophar just comes in in chapter 20 and piles on that though the arrogance of the wicked may appear to take him to great heights, he may seem full and satisfied with all his riches and ill-gotten gain. He says in verse 23 of chapter 20, God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. And then he says in the end, hinting at Job's own calamity, the heavens will reveal your iniquity, the earth will rise up against you, the possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed to him by God. You see what they're trying to do. They're just, they're looking and they're saying, Job, look, this is what happens And what awaits those who have sinned against God? It's a a very uh, uh, clear description of what hell must be like. This is the plight of sinners, Job. Look at yourself. Look at your situation. Draw your own conclusions. Surely you can see, Job, that God is against you. Surely you can see that you must have done something to bring all of this on yourself Come on, Job. Just fess up. Cry out to God that he would have mercy on you. This this growing hostility of Job's friends toward any thought that Job could actually stand blameless before God and still be going through this intense suffering, it foreshadows for us, it helps us to understand the hostility of the world towards the gospel of grace. Think about the religious leaders of Jesus' day whose whose whole system was built around the the same premise of of do good and good things will happen to you and you'll be blessed. Do bad and bad things will happen to you and you'll be cursed. They could not fathom that, that a Messiah would come for the sick, that he would come and dine with sinners. When Jesus told his closest friends, his disciples, that that he would be delivered over and suffer and be killed. You remember what Peter said in Matthew 16? He bursts out and he said, Never, Lord, that, that can't happen to you. And you remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Get behind me, Satan. For you're, listen, you're not listening to the things of God, but to the things of men. The well intentioned comfort offered by Peter. And offered by Job's friends that surely no suffering could ever come to to anyone who was righteous. Was actually a lie of the devil to try and hinder God's purposes and plans for redemption. And we know that. We know what Job doesn't. We know that that God has had this counsel with Satan. And this is what's going on. But Job doesn't know this. And Job's assessment of the counsel of his friends is captured in, oh, back in chapter 16, verse 2. He says, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. You're not helping very much. In other words, it'd be better if you just would sit down and be quiet. 
And then he opens his response to Bildad here in chapter 18. He says, How long will you torment me and break me to pieces with your words? This is what's happening. There's this, this, this battle going on in Job's heart between him and God, but also being, being worked out here between he and his friends. And then Job goes on in the rest of this chapter 19 to, in a sense, agree with his friend's assessment that what he is going through is indeed from God. But he comes to a very different conclusion as to the reasons and as to the resolution of that. At the heart, you see the heart of Job's pain is this deep tension, this deep wrestling, this deep question, the ultimate question that he's dealing with, the big question he's dealing with right now, is God for me or is he against me? Is God for me or is he against me? Everything that I know to be true about God and what he has, has revealed to me about how to follow him and to love him, everything tells me that he is for me. Everything I'm experiencing in my life, all this suffering and pain, these things that are happening for no reason that I can detect tells me that he is against me. Which is it? Is he for me or is he against me? The Bible tells me God loves me. He cares for me. He's going he's gonna to take care of me. And life deals blows beyond what I can feel like I can bear. And his lament here in chapter 19 focuses on that tension. And so he begins by pointing out the latter. <laughs> that God seems to be against him. He echoes in some ways the things that Bildad pointed out earlier. But the difference here is that, that whereas, whereas Bildad and, and, and his friends are describing the punishments of hell as pious armchair onlookers from the outside, Job is experiencing it firsthand as a, as a, as a wheelchair sufferer inside of pain, inside of, of torment. And he says to them, he says, know then that God has put me in the wrong, has closed his net about me. Job says, he, he cries out violence, but I am not answered. I cry out for help, but there is no justice. Job, it's, it's kind of like Job is, is out there and he's, he's throwing the penalty flag on God. And God just walks over there and picks it up and waves it off. No foul. And he describes that feeling as though, as though God has enclosed him in this prison of suffering and, and, and has, has not provided no way out. He describes it as, as God having mounted a siege against him. Look at what he says in verse 11, which we didn't read. He says, he has kindled his wrath against me, counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together and they have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamped around my tent. Job describes this, this attack, God's attack against him, like waking up in a pump, pup tent and finding the entire U.S. military surrounding you with all their uh, guns pointed at you. And that's, how, that's, that's what he feels in his heart is going on. And then he, not only that, he says, he says that God has utterly isolated him from all human companionship. 
His extended family has avoided and abandoned him. His close friends have forgotten him. Those who used to welcome him and, and, and serve him now ignore him and act like they don't even know him. His own wife won't come near him. And even little children, those who, who usually have the most compassion, the most sympathy for those who are, who are suffering any kind of pain, even little children despise and mock him. Job has effects, effectively been canceled by everyone, <laughs> including his three friends who are now on the attack. And so Job says, I am wasting away. And he cries out, this time to his friends who are attacking him, and he says, have mercy on me. Have mercy. God's hand is already against me. Don't you think that's enough? He's already pinned me down. Are you going to pile on too? You think that's helpful? And so here we see again this, this growing sense of despair that, that pain and suffering can, can bring and that Job feels in his plight. And he cannot understand why. He, he feels that God is utterly against him. He says his hand is, is on me. Now it's worth noting here that though this is Job's assessment, again, we know what he doesn't know. We can remember back in chapter 1, chapter 2, Satan coming before God and, and accusing God of, of coddling Job and, and in essence uh, blessing him so that Job will, will, will have allegiance and faith to God, basically bribing Job for his faith. And Satan challenges God to stretch out his hand against Job and bring suffering into his life. And you remember God says to Satan, all that he has is in your hand. In other words, you have permission to touch him. Only don't, he gave, he, he, he established certain limits with him. And so, so the hand that touches Job with such calamity, while it seems in Job's eyes to be that of God against him, is actually that of Satan but under the ultimate authority and control of God. So while Job is correct in, in seeing the sovereign hand of God behind all that he is going through, the hand by which the evil and the temptation is inflicted upon Job is actually wrought by our adversary, Satan, the devil. And so we see this, this tension here between God's sovereignty and, and, the, and, and the role of evil in, in our lives and God being sovereign over all things, but that there being those who are responsible for carrying out that pain. And we'll see in a minute, or as we'll see in this chapter, we see elsewhere in Scripture, what, what Satan means for evil, what he intends for destruction, God is directing and he's intending for his glory and ultimately for Job and ours good. So while Job's diagnosis, which in reality is, a, is somewhat of a misdiagnosis, is that God is against him, he cannot also let go of the fact that he has done nothing to deserve this. Nor can he let go of the, of the reality and the hope that God is indeed righteous. He is indeed just and therefore... He must be Job's only source of vindication. We saw last week this little glimmer of hope kindled in Job's desire 
that there would be an arbiter, that there would be some kind of mediator. Please, there, there must be somebody who can stand between me and God and, and plead my case beforehand. And this, this longing continues to grow. And we see back in, in chapter 16 in his response to Eliphaz in verse 18, there he says, O earth, cover not my blood. Let my cry not find its resting place. Even now, behold, he says, my witness is in heaven. He who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me and my eyes pour out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man before God as a son of man does with his neighbor. Job will not let his case rest. He knows his suffering cries out for an explanation. It cries out for vindication. And he senses that he has a a witness in heaven. And who is that? God himself. He senses that, that God himself holds the key testimony of his innocence. And he longs for this witness to, the, to take the stand on his behalf. And so this, this growing wish, this desire for vindication, for his testimony to, to not be dismissed, it swells up again here in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 19. Job says, Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Or better yet, let's just carve them in stone. Oh, that that somebody would take a deposition, (laughs) take my deposition and, and, and put it into the record. And he knows that when... Job senses that his plight will end in death and he knows that when it does... His friends are not going to have rest in peace written across his tombstone. And he does not want their words to be the last words. Nor does he want to die without having his case heard. And so he says, write it down, seal it for the future. And isn't it interesting, thing, isn't it interesting that God has done just that? We are reading Job's testimony thousands of years later. But his wish for vindication blossoms into a a more confident hope as he realized not just that, that his need is for his case to be preserved, that the testimony needs to be entered, but that it actually needs to be heard. (laughs) It actually needs to be, be dealt with. And so he says in this bold confession of faith, for I know that my redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He doesn't know who it is specifically, but he knows he lives. And so this this cloud of suffering in which Job has been living for so long begins to, to part just for a moment. And Job's eyes of faith see that indeed God is for him. God is for him. And he says, I have a Redeemer. And that Redeemer is God himself. Now, Job here is not thinking of a, a, a particular Messiah to come. He's not, he has no idea of what this will be like. He's not, he's not making here a profession of Jesus himself. He did not have the clear promises even of God that later would come from Moses and the prophets. He could not see how God's sovereign justice and his mercy would be brought together through one mediator between God and man. 
His hope is kind of like that of a person trapped beneath the rubble after a, a, a terrible earthquake or a storm, who in the midst of their, their, their despair and the darkness see a tiny ray of sunlight and, 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 and feel a, a, a small breath of fresh air. And they're still trapped. They still don't know how they're going to get out. But they know someone is out there. They know that, that there is a rescue team. That there's this little opening here like a lifeline of hope. That enables that person to hang on. And Job says, I know I have a redeemer. He says three things about that redeemer. First, he says, I know he lives. He has a living redeemer. That word redeemer is the the Hebrew word goel. And it, it means a kinsman redeemer. A living person who would serve to advocate as an advocate who would serve to to bring justice for one who has has suffered wrong in some manner and this concept will later be codified in God's law for his people the redeemer would be someone tied to to that person by covenant usually a relative and they were called to stand for you when you were wronged If you were murdered, that redeemer would would see that the murderer was punished. If if your share of property was threatened in some way or taken away, that redeemer would, would see that it was safeguarded and brought back. If your widow was childless, your kinsman redeemer would come and and give her a child so that your name and your inheritance would be preserved. He stood for you when you could not stand for yourself. He was a a vindicator, a champion. And a vivid example of this we see in the story of Ruth, whom Boaz comes and serves as her redeemer and restores her fortune and her future, giving her an inheritance and an heir who would eventually be in the line of Jesus Christ. So Job knows, knows he has a redeemer, and he knows this redeemer can be no other than God himself, the living God who stands as redeemer of his people. Job is convinced that if God is sovereign, if he is just, and God will, will vindicate his own, then God will be his redeemer. And brothers and sisters, this is the scandal of the gospel. That God himself would help Job stand before God himself. The world says that's foolishness. Paul says that's the wisdom of God. And Job knew that his only hope would be found in standing before God to plead his case. Yet how he would do so before the very God under whose sovereign hand he was experiencing such pain. It was God. He was his advocate. He was his witness. He would be his living redeemer. The second thing Job knows is that at the last, his redeemer will stand upon the earth. Now, it's not really clear here exactly what Job is thinking of. Some commentators see this as Job's hope that that his testimony will not just survive in writing, will not just survive past his lifetime, but there will actually be a living person standing on his grave who will testify to all of his uprightness before God. But however Job envisioned this, 
He is confident that his Redeemer will appear in person on his behalf. He will stand on the earth for all to see. That he will be present before God and before man on Job's behalf. And thirdly, Job says he knows that he will see this Redeemer. And here's where he identifies him. That he will see God himself in his flesh with his own eyes. And again, while we have to be careful not to credit Job with a a full-blown theology of resurrection here, it does seem that this, this expectation he has seems to come after his death. He says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in his flesh he will see God. Earlier, he had expressed his desire that that he could be hidden in the grave and then then somehow summoned again after after God's wrath had passed by. And here again, that that desire grows into a more confident hope that, that he will stand before God face to face. He will see God's face and that implies he will be in right relationship with him. He will be in good standing. Job's confidence here is is not that he will be marched off to the king of terrors, but that he will stand before the king of kings. And Job's faith seems to burst forth in a confidence that makes it as if this is already a present reality. He says, "My, my heart faints within me. And so here we see Job standing as a prophet in whom, as Peter later says in his letter in 1 Peter 1, He's searching and inquiring what person, what time is the spirit of Christ indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. Job can't see it down the way, but he knows something's there. And he longs for it. And that light of hope is growing even as he will continue to sink back again into the darkness of his suffering. And so friends... We see Job honestly wrestling with the despair of suffering and the hope of deliverance at the hands of a sovereign, righteous, just, and good God. And we wrestle with that sometimes too. Is God for me or is God against me? And the suffering, that suffering of Job and that hope which he has are bound together and fulfilled in this Redeemer who lives and will vindicate Believers and declare him justified before God. And brothers and sisters, that Redeemer is God the Father, who sent his only Son, the one who is greater than Job, to suffer at the hands of sinful men, and by his sovereign decree and purpose to be to be lifted up in death on the cross. On behalf of sinners like you and me. And this Redeemer is also God the Son, Jesus Christ who loved us and and gave himself for us, who came and lived the perfect life, who truly was blameless and innocent before God, having never sinned. And he empties himself of all of his rights and riches as God in order to become a servant and to stand in our stead, taking the punishment of sin, descending into the depths of the grave on the cross, And then rising again to live and stand upon the earth that you and I might be redeemed. He is both just and the justifier of sinners. God is indeed for you in Christ Jesus. And if God is for us, 
Who can stand against us? Do you know that your Redeemer lives? Handel captured this great truth in his famous aria in the work, The Messiah. The suffering and the death of one who truly was blameless and innocent before God and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave give us sure and confident hope. That sure and confident hope that Job desired and he knew somehow would come. But you and I experience it and it has come in Jesus Christ. That all our sins will be forgiven. That all our suffering will be vindicated. That we, despite being enemies of God, will be redeemed. And be called his children and be welcomed into our inheritance. Job could sense it even if he could not see it. And sometimes we can't see it. But we know it's true. And his life and his experience, unbeknownst to him, is written down for eternity in God's book as a foreshadowing and a testimony of the great redemption we have in Jesus Christ. And so friends, the righteousness and the redeemer that Job longs for is the same as that that was desired by Paul in Philippians 3, which we read earlier. We, though we have everything, can count everything as loss, as rubbish, that we might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes by our own merit, but having a righteousness that comes from God through faith. And we want to, if we want to know Christ and the fellowship of his sufferings, we need to know that in order that we might attain to the resurrection of the dead. And so our right standing before God is not found in ourselves. The explanation of our suffering may or may not reside in things that we have done. But in Christ, our Redeemer, we can boldly come into God's presence through His body and blood which was shed for us. And no matter what we go through in this life, no matter how great the pressures of this world are on you, no matter how much pain you have suffered because of friends or foes, no matter how much persecution we may face as God's people for, for our righteousness and our hope in the gospel, we have a sure hope. God is for us. God is for you in Christ Jesus. Our Redeemer lives. And though we don't see him now, we believe in him. And we know that we will stand with him in the new heavens and the new earth face to face redeemed and restored fully by his grace and for his glory. And that's what this table reminds us of. Here we meet with, we fellowship with, we feed upon the benefits and the blessings that our Redeemer has procured for us. The one who died to rescue us from the king of terrors and who now lives for us as the king of kings. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your table, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to these things which you have given to us in your word, things which are hard to understand, even harder to understand as we experience them in our own lives. But Lord, even as we come to the table, may we know for sure that you are for us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.